Well, again, it's uh, good to see you, and I'm glad you're worshiping with us this week. My uh, brother Todd and I are trying to get a podcast off the ground. We've been trying for about a year now. We call it the Dr. Phil and Mr. Watson Show. Uh, my maternal grandfather's uh, last name was Watson, and so he's taken that. And our tagline is lightly informed and heavily opinionated. So there may be a good reason that it is not yet seeing the light of day. As part of it, we like to discuss what I initially started talking about popular culture, but really what we're doing is we're discussing, a little brief part of it is discussing pop songs uh, from when we were teenagers, which would be the 70s for me and the 80s for him. And what's really hard for me to wrap my mind around is that I have played songs now on the podcast that are just in Never Never Land because I don't know if it'll ever get published or produced, I guess is the word I'm looking for, that are over 50 years old. Half a century is what I'm calling popular culture. Uh, I've, I've offered songs like American Pie. Some of you may remember that. That's over 50 years ago. Brandy by Looking Glass. Lean on Me by Bill Withers. Rocket Man, Sir Elton John's over 50 years old. Those songs are classics. They're not, they're so old, they're so good, so we take them off and we, we take them out and we dust them off and we reconsider them. Who doesn't like to reconsider the classics now and then? We live in a town that absolutely reveres history and we appreciate the past. We at least like the outside of our homes to look as they were back in the day, even though we've probably updated it and at least added indoor plumbing. Most of us like to take a look at a classic car that has been completely restored and take a ride in it if it's still uh, moving forward. The same is true of art and literature. We like to reconsider the classics. Well, today we begin a, a, a summer series that's going to take us through the end of July that will feature some of the classic stories of the Bible. And we want to reconsider them and hear them with fresh eyes and hear them with, or see them with fresh eyes and to hear them with fresh ears. I'm going to lead us through the first two uh, before I go on sabbatical this summer. And then Pastor Brian will take the series the rest of the way through July when, when I head off. And so let me invite you to turn or launch your Bibles to the beginning. We're going to start with Genesis, not Genesis 1. I'm going to summarize that. But let me invite you to turn or launch your Bibles to Genesis 3. And before I read this classic, uh, let me just set the stage a little. And uh, Michael, you can go ahead and advance to there. We, well, uh, Okay, there's the earth. We'll look at the earth for a while. So Genesis 1 and 2 gives us the incredible story of creation. They, Genesis 1 and 2 tells us that the heavens and the earth, that God created them, and that God's creation was the sum total of all that is good and all that is holy and all that is beautiful. In Genesis 1, 27, we read that humankind we were created in the image of God. We're image bearers of the living God. And then the psalmist goes on to tell us that poetically that we are and were back then and still are the crown of God's creation. Now, as you read through Genesis 1 and 2, you'll notice that humankind was given all we need to thrive, given free reign of paradise, the run of the place, can eat anything Adam and Eve could eat anything they wanted except the fruit from one tree. Can you imagine that? You can have 
anything you want, anything you need, anything you need to succeed, except the fruit from this one tree. Now, I dare say, if I said today to you, those of you who are in the sanctuary, that you could sit in any chair you want to in this room, with the exception of this one chair, somebody would come up and want to sit in it. It's just the nature of humankind. From time to time through the years, our family has been really blessed to be able to use some of the vacation homes of our friends. And each time we would go, our friends would say something like, hey, you can have the run of the place. You can have the run of the place. Treat it like it's yours. Treat it like it's home. And they would give us a a key to the place. They would even maybe sometimes be a pass to use the pool or a pass to go to the workout room. Usually a, a parking pass would be included. But in every single place, there was always one closet one closet that would simply have the words marked owner's closet over the top of it. And it was that place that would always be locked. No entry, no access. And you can guarantee it, I would try to turn and say, okay, it's locked. No entry, no access. The tree of the knowledge of good and evil was God's owner's closet. He didn't want Adam and Eve to go there. Now, it's not that God didn't want Adam and Eve to know the difference between good and evil, right? God wants us to know the difference between good and evil. It is that God didn't want them to know and to experience evil firsthand. Now, before we begin to read our text, let me give credit where credit is due. I am indebted to faith giants on Genesis 3. There's so much work been written on Genesis 3. Walter Brueggemann, C.S. Lewis, Lynn Sweet, Leith Anderson, Tim Keller, just to name a few. I love learning from smart people, and certainly these scholars are extraordinary. Genesis 3, 1 through 7, read like this. Now the serpent was more crafty than any of the wild animals the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, did God really say you must not eat from any tree in the garden? The woman said to the serpent, we may eat fruit from the trees in the garden. But God did say, you must not eat fruit from the tree that is in the middle of the garden, and you must not touch it or you will die. You will not certainly die, the serpent said to the woman. For God knows that when you eat it, when you eat from it, your eyes will be open and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. When the woman saw that the fruit of the tree was good for food and pleasing to the eye and also desirable for gaining wisdom, she took some and ate it. She also gave some to her husband who was with her, and he ate it. Then the eyes of them were opened, and they realized they were naked. So they sewed fig leaves together and made coverings for themselves. I want us to look first at the eruption of disruption. The tempter strikes with a one-two punch, a sarcastic question, then a usurping lie. And the loaded question, the serpent goes to Eve and said, did God really say, did God really say that you shouldn't eat from any tree? The serpent is not asking the question in a neutral manner. The serpent is not on a fact-finding mission. The serpent is not interested in the truth. This is an arrogant question. Did God really say this? God is being mocked here. I remember when I was in the army, I went to a social gathering once, and I 
and I was talking to a guy, and somehow the subject of God came up. I told him that I believed in God, and it was amazing to me. Just immediately, he began to mock people who believe in God. And, he, and I'll never forget his words. He said that God, the belief in God is for weak-minded people, and religion is just a crutch for people who can't make it through life on their own. I don't, there's a lot of people who feel this way. I don't know if you saw the Washington Post article this past week that belief in God, this country, is as low as it's ever been. 81% of people believe in God. I'm not saying they have a relationship with God, but believe in the existence of God. Now, before you say, wow, 81%, this country doesn't agree on 81% of anything. This country wouldn't agree on 81% that the the sun is in the sky. That is still an all-time low for us. That means one in five, one in five do not believe in the existence of God. You take it to people ages 15 to 29, and it almost goes to one in three. Okay? So, in this situation, it was a mocking question. I tried to mumble something, and I don't really know what I said. But I'll never forget how smug and arrogant the guy was. That's what the serpent was doing in the garden. The serpent didn't want to know the truth. The serpent wanted to mock God. Well, score one for Eve, one at least. She answered correctly, but then came the lie. No, go ahead and eat it. You will not die. You will be like God. And she bought it. She bought it. The idea that she could become like God is the lie that she bought. And that lie fell straight from her heart to our heart today. Doesn't it? Notice the serpent didn't question the power of God, the holiness of God, or like the guy when I was in the army, the serpent didn't question the existence of God. The serpent challenged the goodness of God. God told them what was better. God told them what was good for them, and the serpent challenged it. And the serpent, evil one, still uses the same tactics in our lives today. At the end of the day, the great defect because of the fall is that we want to act and live like we are God and in that place where we call the shots. So they ate. And then disruption erupted. The moment they ate, sin, death, and decay entered the world. Now, have you ever wondered why didn't God just tell them what would happen? Have you ever wondered that why God just didn't say, hey, if you eat this, then all hell literally will break loose? Do you ever wonder why God just didn't spell that out for them? If God had spelled that out for them, there's a really good chance they would have said, no thanks, serpent. Move on, little snake. Don't want anything to do with you. Tim Keller, who had a brilliant piece on this, said, if they knew what would happen, they would have engaged in a cost-benefit analysis exercise. Let me say that again. If they would have known the specifics of what would happen, they would have engaged in a cost-benefit analysis exercise. They would have said no. I'll pass because of what's in it for them. 
They would have said, no, I'll pass because I don't want that. I don't want that. I don't want that. I'd rather have this, that, and the other. That is not joyful, glad obedience, which is what God is after. That would have been a selfish cost-benefit analysis, calculated bargaining, if you will. God, I will obey you not because of who you are and not just because of all the goodness you've already given to me. God, it's not, God, I will obey you because I owe my life and my being and my breath to you. It would have been, God, I will obey you because I don't want bad things to happen to me. Cost-benefit versus just unbridled obedience and devotion. Have you ever done that? God, if you just heal me, I'll live for you. God, if you just take care of this job situation, I'll make sure to go to every church. I might even bump up the offering a little. God, if you will just, you fill in the blank. But that's not what God is after. The God of the universe, the mighty, holy, good God, is not interested in a collective bargaining agreement with humankind. From the very beginning of this deal, from the very beginning of this relationship, God has wanted to be in a life-giving, loving relationship with his creatures called humans. God created humankind and God refuses to coerce or bribe his creation into loving obedience. And as soon as their teeth broke the skin of the fruit, the communion and the connection between the creator and the creature was disrupted. It was disrupted. And as the story unfolds, we see the corruption of disruption, right? I won't read the rest of the chapter. We'll come back to the the rest of the story in just a minute. But as the story unfolds, you see the breakdown of four key relationships. Their vertical relationship was broken. They were in hiding from God. Their sense of internal relationship was broken. Their relationship to themselves, their eyes were open and they realized that they were naked. In the Bible, naked means so much more than without clothing. The text says that they were ashamed. Shame will wreck you from the inside out. And so they tried to cover up. They didn't want to show the world who they were. Their horizontal relationships were broken. God says to Adam, you have, eaten from, have you eaten from the tree I told you not to? And what, what does Adam do? He throws Eve under the Paradise Express bus. It didn't take him long at all. The woman, actually through God too, the woman you gave me did this. Not the manliest moment for the male half of humankind, was it? Look what he was doing. We all do it, male and female. He was saying, my good, my justification at your expense. And that's sin. All exploitation, all abuse, all greed, all racism, all violence can be traced to my good at your expense. I believe it was Leith Anderson that said that. My good at your expense. But God's way, the way of Jesus, the way Jesus modeled it for us, was your good at my expense, wasn't it? Your good at my expense. And of course we know as the story unfolds, Eve blamed the serpent. So how about a gut check for a moment? 
when you think about your relationships with others, is it my good at your expense or your good at my expense? Even their relationship with creation was broken. Now there will be thorns and thistles. Now work will be a grind. Anybody ever had a bad day at work? It started right here. Right out of the gate. Isn't it amazing? The Bible opens in this grandeur. And we don't even get through chapter 3 and it's all messed up. So where's the hope? I'm glad you asked. 21, verse 21. The Lord God made garments of skin for Adam and his wife and clothed them. And the Lord God said, the man has now become like one of us, knowing good and evil. He must not be allowed to reach out his hand and take also from the tree of life and eat it and live forever. So the Lord God banished him from the Garden of Eden to work the ground from which he had been taken. After he drove the man out, he placed on the east side of the Garden of Eden cherubim and a flaming sword flashing back and forth to guard the way to the tree of life. If you'll look back at 21 one more time. So the Lord God made garments of skin for Adam and his wife and clothed them. He clothed them. We see the solution to disruption. In the middle of this brokenness and chaos, we see God responding by drenching the scene with his mercy. God was just to be certain. They experienced the consequences. And God was merciful. God can hold justice and mercy together. One scholar says we see the heart of mercy and the hand of mercy. When we look at the heart of mercy, going all the way back to verse 8, we see Adam and Eve hiding, but we see God seeking. We like to hide. God likes to seek, pursue, call, and woo. God initiated the relationship in the first place, and now when it's disrupted, God initiates the repair. God is staying connected to our parents in paradise. Yes, God disciplined them, and they're going to be banished from paradise, but not from God's heart. Let me say that again. They were going to be banished from paradise, but not from the heart of God. And we see the hand of mercy. Here we see a beautiful expression of the foreshadowing. God made garments for Adam and Eve. An innocent animal was sacrificed to cover their nakedness and to cover and protect them. And we see the sacrificial system foreshadowed. We see the cross of Jesus foreshadowed. Innocent blood shed to cover the human. Adam and Eve tried to cover their sin and shame with fig leaves, but it would take more. It would take the hand of God. No matter how hard we try, as humankind, we cannot produce our solution to the disruption. Centuries later, Jesus waged his own battle with a tree in his garden. He climbed the tree of death, the cross, so that we could be forgiven and covered and clothed in him. It was the genesis of recreation. The genesis 
of redemption. So Genesis 3, this classic reconsidered. Genesis 3 is stained with the sin of humankind, and it is drenched in the mercy of God. Isn't it? Stained with sin and drenched in mercy. So in Genesis 1 and 2, we see the very best of humankind, the crown of creation. In Genesis 3, we see the worst of humankind. Oh, there'll be more tragic stories as you read through Scripture. But they all come back to humankind desiring to put in that place of God. What our parents did that day fell straight into our hearts. We cannot escape the sin that stains And we have available the mercy that drenches. That's the good news from Genesis 3, this classic reconsidered. Will you bow your head and close your eyes? Let's pray together. God, you have said so many yeses to us. I pray that you help us to say yes to you today by your grace. Father, we recognize in Genesis 3 our story. We look within ourselves and we see both the subtle and dramatic ways that we have rebelled against you. Father, help us by your grace to mourn the disruption that our sin causes in our lives and in our world. How it breaks communion with you. How we put ourselves above others. Lead us to that place where we would not look at the sins of others and pass judgment, but where we'd look at our own and accept responsibility. Father, help us to see your mercy poured out for us in Jesus. Help us to see that we can't cover our sin and hide it from you, but that you will. You will remove it, and indeed, you will remember it no more. Help us, God, to look at the cross and see the mercy, the mercy there given for us through Jesus. And so, God, I pray for each person in this room today that indeed they will say yes to your mercy, yes to your forgiveness, yes to your grace. In the name of Jesus, our Lord, our Savior, we pray. Amen. Hunter is going to lead us in a closing song this morning, after which Brian is going to come and just share a few Uh, highlights of our mission together as well as uh, our closing prayer. But after the service today, if you would like to receive prayer, if you'd like to come and and say, hey, I want to know more about this relationship with Jesus, I'm going to ask Brian to to be at the cross uh, after our benediction today. and Just come up, if you desire, for prayer, for conversation about the great and mighty mercy of God. Let's stand and sing our closing song.